Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And follow us at our new Twitter account. We're at CVL Soundboard. Later in the show, Nathan Moore and Peter Galaska discuss the Virginia localities contemplating whether or not to become a gun sanctuary. But first, we catch up on development and housing with Charlottesville Tomorrow. Today, we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and editor Elliot Robinson. We're going to catch up a little bit on the whole comprehensive planning process that's been going on for a couple of years. And we're also going to talk about a couple of the developments that Emily has written about recently in the Development Digest. So this can be a really confusing topic. Can you start us off by telling us what is the comprehensive plan? So the comprehensive plan is sort of a vision for what a locality like the city of Charlottesville wants to see happen. It's kind of a guiding document for city staff. And uh, it's mandated by laws that every locality has a comprehensive plan, but the plan itself is not a law. So this one in the city has been going on for a couple of years, partially because of the August 12, 2017 Unite the Right rally really mobilized a lot of activists in the city to think about how these planning processes contribute to structural racism or not. And where are we in the process right now? So there was a draft that the City Planning Commission had worked really hard on, made some final finishing touches, and brought to the City Council a year ago. The City Council was concerned that some of these finishing touches kind of came out of nowhere and were not based on community engagement. And so they decided to put together a big chunk of change out of the city's budget and hire consultants to finish the comprehensive plan to do a housing strategy, which activists have been asking for, and also rewrite the city's entire zoning to match those goals. So one thing that confuses me is there's a lot of parallel planning processes going on that we've talked about here on the show over the past couple months. So we've talked about small area plans, like in Fifeville. Uh, we've talked about the comprehensive housing strategy. And we've talked about form-based code. How are all of these projects related to the comprehensive plan? So a lot of these are supposed to be sort of addenda into the comprehensive plan. So the comprehensive plan it has a transportation chapter. And it has a what kinds of developments are supposed to go where map. And what a small area plan does is it takes a neighborhood and does chapters like that for each neighborhood. So it's a more intensive neighborhood engagement process. Councillor Kathy Galvin is a big advocate for this because she says, you know, you get this deeper planning. But opponents have been critical that this is a piecemeal way to look at this, that these plans are often based in historically African-American neighborhoods. So are we changing those neighborhoods and leaving the historically white neighborhoods untouched? So that's why activists have been asking for this comprehensive housing strategy. When I've talked to people, they, they often say, well, what about these historically white neighborhoods? They say that adding a little bit more density there will help the housing supply. And how is form-based code related to this whole process? So form-based code, the way we've been talking about it in Charlottesville, is part of one of these small area plans. 
so it was part of this neighborhood plan for the southern downtown area, the strategic investment area, friendship courts there. And form-based code was a way of implementing a small area plan that already exists for that neighborhood. It is a different kind of zoning, so it's just changing the laws that determine how the land develops. It's more based on the outside of buildings rather than the inside. And so one interesting difference between form-based code and something like a small area plan or the comprehensive plan is that form-based code is actually law, right? right? right. Yeah. Anything else on that section? Oh, in the Development Digest. Oh, yeah. So the (laughs) the reason why we're talking about this is that the city has chosen consultants to do this, like, huge, you know, comprehensive plan update, housing update, and the zoning update. And that firm is Roadside and Harwell. They're based out of D.C. and New York, but they've worked in Charlottesville before. And their proposal takes the city through a 25-month process. First, they would work on the housing strategy as they update the comprehensive plan. The comprehensive plan would be some final months after the housing strategy, and then the zoning update would take place after that. And throughout, they really focus on community engagement and the kind of community engagement that activists are hoping will focus more on marginalized groups than maybe some of these meetings and and things have in the past. It will be really interesting as they're working on this and having that engagement factor, Jordy Yeager is working on the Racial Covenants Project. He's uh, doing a very, very deep dive into all of our court records. Uh, when I saw him earlier this week, he had gotten a stack from the courthouse, and he's looking for phrases that are restricting what types of people could live in certain neighborhoods, and then he's plotting those out on a map, and then he's going to compare that to our zoning map. One of his hypotheses is that in some ways intentionally, in some ways unintentionally, our current zoning was perpetuating some of the housing segregation that we had in the past. He's actively uh, seeking people who, who would like to volunteer to help them crunch all this data and get it into the system so they can create that map. Right. It's a low barrier. You don't have to have any computer knowledge, really, to get involved. And where would people go to get involved? Mappingseville.com. So residential density was a big issue in the city council elections this year. What does the draft comprehensive plan that has now been passed to the consultants say about where the city will allow apartment buildings versus single-family homes, attached units? One of the changes that the draft comprehensive plan made that actually the city council really liked, it seemed like, was they sort of restored some of the zoning that existed in Charlottesville before where you can have duplexes and it doesn't really matter how many things you have inside of a building that looks basically like a single family house. So it's adding in that small scale way to have a little bit more affordable housing because it's smaller, it's more affordable to more people. And what do community members think about this proposal? So far, I haven't heard anything negative One planning commissioner, Lisa Green, I remember she said, we're going to get crucified about some of this. And I think she was talking about that big change, and she was wondering whether neighborhoods had actually taken notice of that yet. Have they? Not yet. I haven't heard anything. Another aspect of this was trying to incorporate a little bit more of the small-scale cafes and things into these neighborhoods. It sort of brings back the kind of neighborhood-focused, neighborhood-feeling areas that used to exist before zoning. 
So your recent development digest had a couple really different housing development proposals. Let's go through a couple of them and talk about how they're related to the city's vision for housing development. Yeah, so I wanted to mention here that one of the confusing things about this comprehensive plan process being in limbo is that developers don't know what the city's vision is. Every planning commissioner has different visions. All the city councilors have different visions. So even me watching, I watch all of their decisions. Sometimes I don't know why they make what decisions they make. The commission sometimes still acts on what they wanted from the comprehensive plan, even though it hasn't been passed and then just let city council figure it out. So when the comprehensive plan is passed, they'll still vote on individual developments? Yes, they will. But it will be guided by a plan that hopefully incorporates and allows more affordable housing than our current plan really makes happen. Okay, first example. The city council started to deny a special use permit for the proposed nine-story building on the Artful Lodger site downtown. The applicant then asked for a deferral and the council granted it. First, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what happened at that city council meeting, what this development is like? Yeah, so this is, like you said, a nine-story building, probably an apartment building. It could be condos. It's not really um, limited. And they're trying to get more housing into that than they would be allowed otherwise. And what was interesting to me is that some of the counselors who who often say yes to these development proposals... Kathy Galvin, Mike Signer, they were pretty hesitant about this one and were concerned that this would be another flats, the apartment building on West Main, that the way it looks is so big that that's part of why it's uh, one of the least popular buildings, I think, in the area. So Kathy Galvin said, I'm worried that this is going to be another flats and I don't want that to be my legacy. Both are leaving the council this January. So I was interested to see that those two people who often say yes to developments thought that this building was too big, and they were about to say no. Heather Hill seemed more, this is okay, this is a place that can afford higher buildings. You know, the Omni is right there, that's tall. The Code building that will be a tech center downtown, and that's being built right now, that will be tall. So she was like, this is going to be fine. When the developer representative came up and said, well, okay, if you're going to deny it, let let me defer it and we'll try to come back with a proposal that you like better. Then Kathy Galvin, Mike Signer, and Heather Hill agreed to do that. Counselors Wes Bellamy and Nakia Walker voted against doing that. So based on the, the history of this developer, Heirloom Development, which did 600 West Main, that many people have noticed has very, very high rents, This developer is originally from New York and still lives part of the time in New York. And some people think that that those prices are a little bit more comparable to to New York prices than here. But they are getting sold, or at least. The counselors asked the developer representative, LJ Lopez of Milestone Partners, would these prices likely be similar? And he said, yes, they probably would be. So these would likely be luxury apartments They're intended to be for the new employees at the Code Building and other luxury office buildings downtown. And was the likely cost of the apartments or condos a factor in the vote? Yeah, I think so. Councillor Galvin and Councillor Signer looked at the building. They said, this is going to be huge. 
we don't see the public benefit. Kathy Gallen and Mike Singer both said that this is too expensive to be a public good. The <laughs> maximum height allowed for a building in Charlottesville is 101 feet, but you have to ask special permission to build something that tall. Yeah, and it's only allowed in certain places like the downtown mall. It'll come back to the Planning Commission, so we'll see it in the future. All right, example number two. The City Council approved a request to upzone a plot of land near Scott Stadium to allow for two new apartment buildings. What is this new development like? So it would be built around uh, a historic house that's already there. It's near Scott Stadium, like you mentioned, so it's already sort of in a university area. Um, It would have about 33 apartments and would be three to four stories tall. There's an affordability requirement for it because of the rezoning, and so it would either be 15% on-site, 15% of the floor area, or five affordable units somewhere else. This did get approved. You know, we were just talking about how Councillor Galvin was talking about what's a public good, this has to work for public good, and she was saying, Right now, this is almost definitely going to be student housing, but maybe one day if the university increases the amount of student housing they have on campus, maybe this will eventually convert to employee housing. Were there any other factors that you think might have led to it being passed by city council? Yeah. So before we were talking about the comprehensive plan and the community's vision for the different neighborhoods in Charlottesville, the area around the university is one where seems like it could include a little bit more density. It could have a little bit more housing because of its proximity to the university, because there was already some community consensus. um, It got approved more easily. All right, last housing example. The city council considered a draft plan for Star Hill neighborhood that would bring housing and Black-owned businesses back to Charlottesville's former Vinegar Hill neighborhood, which was raised during urban renewal. Can you tell us a little bit more about this development? So if you think of Preston Avenue, West Main Street, and McIntyre Road, which is that road that connects them, the crossings is part of this neighborhood. It only actually has a little bit of housing. There are only a few houses there, and mostly it's a lot of this space that was carved out because of urban renewal. So that's why this new nonprofit, New Hill Development Corporation, decided to do their first small area plan, their first efforts really in Charlottesville. So in addition to the couple of houses and the crossings, what's there right now? There's a huge chunk of land that's owned by the city called City Yard. This is currently where their public works department is. And so this is one of the big reasons why they chose this area, because it's city-owned. So if the city wanted to convert that into something that maybe serves different community desires, then this would be the place to do it. So they did this whole study about how many apartments could you put in based on some community feedback. You could put in some little houses for first-time homeowners. And they would also have an incubation space for some minority-owned businesses and some small retail space. One thing that is important to mention is this used to be a gas production plant. So there definitely is some pollution contamination on the site, but so far it doesn't seem like it would be bad enough to prevent housing being there. And there are grants and things that you can use to fix the site up. So the city council still has to decide if they're going, would they sell the piece of land to the nonprofit? Would they give it to them? Yeah, I'm not sure that that next step is 
so clearly defined. It ha- it's not clear that the city does want to give up that land at all. So, so they're just considering it. They're right just now. considering yeah. it, and that same study could be applied to some of the parking lots that are there. You know, there's the Staples parking lot and and the Staples building, and that area could be redone in a similar way. One really interesting thing about this plan is they got in this heavyweight partner for the plan, the Local Initiative Support Corporation. This is a huge national organization that deals in like millions, billions of dollars. And they're focused on revitalizing neighborhoods based on community-run organization. They come in and just provide expertise and money for what the community wants. It was huge that this nonprofit was able to get LISC as a partner. And they do raise all this money, so it really makes, especially some of the smaller things about how to improve the Jefferson School African-American Heritage Center, which is right there, maybe reconnect that area to the downtown mall. All of that seems more possible because of this heavyweight partner. One thing that I think is really interesting to point out is this is one of the many small area plan processes going on, but it's different in that this organization is run by two African-American entrepreneurs especially one, Yolanda Harrell. And she is really, really thinking about what it means to make a space welcoming to the African-American community. And so she has this personal knowledge and focus on race that a lot of these small area plans don't have, even though almost all of them have been in historically African-American neighborhoods. So this whole area was raised and the Jefferson School is there, but this is kind of one of the first intentional efforts to bring people back to this neighborhood that was destroyed. Vinegar Hill pretty much flowed into downtown Charlottesville. If you were unfamiliar with the city, if you were heading down West Main Street, you wouldn't be able to tell where downtown ended and uh, Vinegar Hill began. And then with some of the ideas of maybe doing something with the Staples parking lot and trying to rebuild those connections, the New Hill plan could lead to kind of not completely undoing what had happened before, but foster some of that feeling of this is an inclusive space. Yeah. Thank you all so much for giving us so many details and clarifying so many points about all of the various development projects and planning (laughs) processes going on around Charlottesville. Let's go ahead and end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? Well, uh, it's not for next week, but this current week, we had a visitor, so an online journalism outlet in Ukraine. We were a part of a, a bit of an exchange program, so three of their news team members came to visit us to see how we do things, and they went on tours of cultural sites here. They also visited with CBS 19. It was very fascinating to sit down and talk with them because as we were sharing ideas and what we do, we found a lot of similarities between the two countries and what's going on. And a lot of differences. They have warfare going on just outside, very close to where they live. So that was a big difference that was interesting to hear about. On my calendar for this week, there is both a city council and a board of supervisors meeting. And I think there will be some pretty interesting votes. I think the Um, county is going to talk about their scooter policy. They currently don't have one, but the General Assembly forced them to create one. So we'll see what that ends up being. And both of those meetings will be quite interesting because they will be the final ones for the current Board of Supervisors and City Council. 
All right. Thank you all so much for coming in today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. WTJU and Teej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. Celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, as we do here on Soundboard, we check in with state news and politics, and we turn to our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He writes and lives over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So uh, this week, I want to follow up on something we've talked about last time, which is a lot of these uh, so-called gun sanctuaries that are popping up across the Commonwealth um, in localities, mostly rural counties, it sounds like. Um, take me through what's going on lately. Well, actually, the, um, the gun sanctuary situation would be the, that if, if the General Assembly now was soon to be controlled by Democrats passed a significant gun control legislation that localities will just refuse to enforce it or have some kind of statement about concern. And it started in rural areas, and it's been led by a, a group, um, the uh, Virginia Citizens Defense League, which is a pro-gun anti-regulation uh, lobby. It started in the rural areas, but now it's really spreading. It started in a few counties and in the south side and mountain areas, and now it's it's gone to 70 localities, and it's gone beyond, um, say, rural areas and small towns to large suburban counties. And, uh, for example, this week in, in the Richmond area, uh, uh, boards of supervisors in Hanover, Henrico, and Chesterfield counties all considered some kind of resolution the meetings were, were swarmed with people, uh, both both sides of them, uh, and at some points, fire marshals had to prevent people from um, going into the uh, chambers because there's too, they were too overcrowded. Hanover and Renrico passed some kind of uh, modified measures about second-right sanctuaries, although they didn't use the word sanctuary, and Chesterfield refused to do so. This is really drawing, becoming quite a phenomenon. And uh, so we'll have to see what happens next. So you mentioned the group that, that has been organizing some of these. Tell me more about who this is. Where's their funding coming from? Who are they uh, supported by? Well, I'm not sure where their funding is coming from. I would, I would uh, assume it would come from the National Rifle Association. But, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, they were considered sort of a fringe group, um, you know, they would show up at uh, various political um, exhibits and conventions with, you know, gun save lives, buttons and things like that. But they really hit a nerve. And what worries me a little bit or concerns me is that it, it se- they seem to be tapping some of the, the Trumpian fervor uh, that's around, especially now that impeachment is, is going forward, um, that, you know, people really are, are kind of collecting a lot of emotions and partisan ideas and pushing them into some dangerous areas. Well, there's there's something about the people flooding into these public meetings that I think is worth remarking on. It is exclusively white people, right, and and mostly older ones. For the most part, it is. I don't know if it's exactly white people, but <laughs> that they, they're basically, 
Yeah, they are basically kind of, um, it's not a very diverse crowd at all. Yeah. There's another little bit to this. I mean, it's based, you know, there is kind of a legal theory they're basing this on, and it's kind of like a weird, fringy, scary legal theory that the sheriff is essentially the guy who runs the show in a county no matter what. Uh, yeah. Up to and including nullification, like going full John Calhoun on us here. Right, exactly. Um, that's what interesting, because I forgot to mention that in Culpeper County, a sheriff, the sheriff there has offered to deputize citizens by the hundreds uh, if they want, and they pass a background check, and that way they can keep their guns. That's exactly like the Calhoun thing. I mean, you know, and that, of course, led to the Civil War. Right. I mean, it's it's... There's the policies themselves, which, all right, you know, how much they're going to back it up or not, I don't know. But there's some really, to me, scary undercurrents behind some of this. Absolutely. And, I mean, I don't think, you know, one of the reasons, like, when Barack Obama was um, becoming president and you had the the run on gun shops, uh, it just did not have the same kind of evil, nasty, toxic uh, atmosphere that this does. And I think it's, you can lay this on Donald Trump. All right. Well, let's move on to another topic for today. We uh, I want we always talk about energy and environment because it's kind of a big deal around here. Um, uh, Governor Northam, Ralph Northam, has a budget proposal for this year, um, and in it, he has suggested a lot more funding priority for things like a Chesapeake Bay cleanup and other sort of environmental efforts. Take mm-hmm. me through some of what's in there. Yeah. Well, uh, Northam is suggesting uh, as part of his budget over two years, spending seven hundred and thirty-three million dollars. On, on, a whole, on a variety of new initiatives, and um, of this, about $400 billion um, over the next five or so years would um, uh, improve water quality in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, which had been improving and kind of take, took a setback in the last year or so. And that would help farmers, that would help um, you know, developers from having you know, sediment runoff and build oyster beds and the like. One of the more significant things, I think, is that the, the idea would commit Virginia to the Regional Greenhouse Gas, Gas Initiative, which is sort of a carbon trading program that's operated mostly by a number of North, Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic states. Uh, that was approved last year, or this year, in uh, the General Assembly, but Republicans refused to fund it. That might change with the new Democratic General Assembly. And um, there are a number of things, you know, the $10 million for local renewable energy, um, Putting in Portsmouth Marine Terminal, which um, I used to live near, uh, is a big you know shipping port, and they would somehow improve that to um, handle offshore wind supply and logistics. So it's a very interesting proposal. Yeah, what's the kind of uh, over overarching takeaway from here? Well, it seems that with the Democrats coming into power, that uh, Northam is going to really push through. And don't forget, he grew up on the Chesapeake Bay, and he lives in, he lived in Norfolk, uh, and uh, in the eastern, also on the eastern shore. So he's pretty, you know, kind of plugged into the Bay issues. And it's something that's that's I'm not saying the last Democratic governors haven't been concerned, but he's really pushing this forward, which is an interesting move. Um, well, sort of on the flip side of that coin, we've got Dominion Energy here in Virginia, which also operates a whole bunch of power plants. Um, they are trying to make a case right now that they need to build a whole bunch of new natural gas-fired power plants. Uh, well, there's a new report from S&P Global that is pretty scathing about, about their argument. Take me yeah. through what's going on here. Yeah, uh, S&P Global is a New York-based large global you know, uh, investment assessment firm. Just full disclosure, I used to work for the company that um, used to own S&P Global. 
although I never worked for S&P, they're pretty well known. And they came out with a report um, saying that, uh, you know, that Dominion is still trying to build like eight new gas plants and they're not really needed. And that consistently over the years that uh, Dominion has over uh, estimated how much the growth of electric electrical demand. And they, they do this because they can stick the bill on ratepayers. And so they say this is wrong. And, um, you know, they this doesn't even include the two new gas plants that have come on in Brunswick and Greensville. But um, Dominion says they need a bridge to um, to supply demand for uh, as renewables come into the fore. By the way, there's a New York Times report out today saying that nationwide there's a big blood of natural gas and the fracking movement is pretty much over for a while. Well, in the meantime, the power plants that Dominion wants to build, I mean, S&P's investment, this is the people that basically tell investors, you know, hey, this is worthwhile or this is not. And they're basically saying Dominion's kind of full of it. Is that the gist? <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty, I was surprised by it. Uh, I mean, this has been out there for a while, but S&P really nailed it. This is part of a series of reports S&P did week long for a whole week um, all around the country because Dominion isn't the only electric utility that's overestimating stuff and pushing towards more gas. Uh, in the West, there's there, the Midwest, all over. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic, and it's a changing thing. I mean, you know, it's, like, it's almost like being in the military. I mean, you always build weapons to fight the last war. And this is sort of a, you know, a reaction to the fracking boom uh, that really lowered gas prices, oh, maybe uh, starting a decade ago. Well, that's coming to an end, so things move forward. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Okay. Take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. We'd also appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme music is Shoga Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our new website at SeavelSoundboard.com.